Here again we come to this, the end of a season and another episode of Lorecast Explained. Ah, I hope, my friend and my brother, that you have found the journey as intimate and exquisite as I have. The web of Eard is a delicate but firm mistress. A duramata spares no insolence and indolence. And through our abandonment of the goddess fate, be she biological destiny or cosmic justice, we have incurred a penalty in some ways worse than death. We have invited decay, malaise, ignorance, and pathétique. This in turn has led us to another most grotesque of insults. We have allowed our culture to shrivel. It was not robbed from us. We sold the rights and the rights. What we have, we can only fairly expect. But alas, alack, history shows there is no end of chances. For breath belies fate, and it is in our power to cooperate with our best destiny or reject it. We can return to our ways and culture. We can expunge the foreign influence from our thinking and become ourselves again. Our children do not have to exist in a vacuum, abhorred by nature. This is the gift we can give them, to return them to a native culture. And this is the power we bear, to determine for ourselves what native entails. Hence, my brother, self-determination. We can, and therefore, we must do better than the dismal nothingness we have received as a paltry offering for the soul we sold to industry. You, brother, can repent and return to the goddess, as can I, as can we all. It is not a matter of complexity, as some would have you believe. It is not a matter of grandiosity or impossibility. It is a matter setting a course and steering the rudderless ship to the peaks of heaven where our glory awaits. It does not even have to be a religious conversion, like washing the feet of strangers under the shadow of a crucifix. Our race has always viewed our nations as a mistress and a goddess. We are Gentiles, of a kind and of a kindred. Nation means birthright, you know. Americans were once watched over by Colombia, when this country was yet a nation in birth pangs. As Germany was catered to by the spirit of Germania, and the French... They traded theirs for the Lady Reason. I don't know what guides them now. And the Irish? They are still watched by Erin, and the island still bears her name. True to the promise. Race and nation, treated as divine marriage, mirrors the classical interpretation of the Church. That is no coincidence. Biblical scholars must confess that early churches were nationalized. The body has always been that of a woman, a bride. For those without faith, faith is not needed, and reason will do. You can live life for the worse and die for better than a metaphor. But faith, faith is best. Faith in the divinity that courses through our veins, trying to recall the sense of destiny that propelled our ancestors across the globe like a dynamo. A dyke better than the old hat that says this life is all we have and we'd better get used to it. That we're so much cleverer than all of our ancient kin, and we might as well embrace the new religious reality of the Church of the Consumer, and forget all of that mystical tripe. Pascal called for a leap of faith. Friend, what more can you lose if you close your eyes and give yourself in marriage to the blood ties that bind? Release yourself of your preconceptions, of only for a moment, and try to see the tapestry the Nornia, Parcae, and Morai have left us. How the religious roads lead back to a common well, drawn from the water of two springs, that flowed from a forgotten eternity. Lest you forget 
that this is the purpose of this podcast, the reason for the season, as it were. I am not a dispassionate scholar, and I absolutely have an agenda. Of this you can rest assured, lest you consider thinking to accuse me of bias. I embrace it fully. Now, this I warn to allay the suspicion of dishonesty, a needless dichotomy if my intentions are laid bare. My knowledge serves as a vessel to promote a return to our culture, as others have the rights to return to theirs. A return is a complicated affair, for the roots are deep and the trees tall, so tall that one can scarcely see the uppermost boughs. So our tree is at once like Yggdrasil, whose roots hold the solar system in tight array, and so it is like the mighty Finnish oak, so tall that the sun herself feeds the brightest branch. The Ermansu of the Teuton, the Thunderstroke Oaks in Rome, all these pale in comparison to our family tree of life. To worship at this altar of blood and soil is to connect the dots of your chart to this beginning. Far in spades beyond what your parish records show, indeed further back than science is wont to admit. What conclusions may be had may be speculation, but the speculative sciences were once a proud institution. So they must be again, if we are to seize the firmament, so that below terra firma might hold water for our children as they sail the river of blood, farther than Styx and to Elysium. So, here it is, my passionate plea renewed. Foremost beyond the destruction of Carthage, I believe it is high time we took our gods and heroes back, not from some fabled enemy, but the cynical and depraved among us who insist their fabricated nihilism. It is not the enemy in the gate, but the coward in the citadel, whose wounds bleed us and grieve us most, for his is the knife in the dark we ignore at our peril. If indeed one cannot seize belief from the hands of the void, then at least one might seize ownership and history of our gods and tales, and all that they evoke. That ownership will ground us, give us strength. You shall find, if you thrust your hands into the heart of the matter, that the blood which courses back upward will swell your veins with renewed vigor. You yourself are a link in a chain, fragmented, deranged, but not broken. This chain connects us to our ancestors, from whom we are inseparate. We are our ancestors, as surely as we are ancestry to our descendants, themselves being us in ourselves. What is a child but a continuation of the parent? Why, then, is it so hard for the modern nationalists to seek for the center of this context? If you are continued from your parents, and yours from theirs, at the end of the day you are yet continued from the first of these. What was theirs is ours, for their lives are precisely what pulse through our veins. That isn't the merest of blood which bleeds when you're pricked, cut, or savaged. No, it is the history of life itself, the family represented by the clan, drawn out from the tribe as given by the nation. And again, I shall surely continue to remind you, every indigenous family tree in the European diaspora begins with a god. So it was that we discussed them, at least inasmuch as I can follow them in their appearance in the Celtic, Hellenic, and Nordic hinterlands. You might ask why I have chosen to omit the Finno-Ugric gods from this catalogue. My reasoning is pragmatic. I have less experiment, experience with these than others, but owing certain peculiarities, I find for my purposes that it is easier to connect the substance of Finnish myths to the Euro-Aryan spirit than the gods that people them. This I attribute to the language barrier, 
wherein the gods themselves are often connected to the language that carries them, whereas a story is a spiritual language that uses verbal language as a vessel. Now, where to begin when there are so many points? Now, perhaps I should simply begin in the order that epiphanies dawned on me. I might like to think that the muses steered my hand, so I shall begin my affairs with an ode to these sumptuous sisters who order the machinations of fate. The dominatrices of fate cut a swath across western and northern European, northern European hinterland with exquisite and, and intriguing solidarity. First, allow us the courtesy of examining their names. The Greek called their mistresses Morai or Morea. The Romans referred to theirs after a goddess, Parca, which became Parcae collectively. The northern Germans believed in the Nornia. You may be tempted to believe that the Celts had no such belief, but we find in the Irish Morigna, as is her Trinitarian name, a suitable cognomen. In the Irish myths, the Morrigan, personal name, is said to reside in the underworld with nine sisters. The Muses, shall recall, were nine sisters. The numerical parallel aside, they share a common function, the inspiration of men. The cynic might argue that women have always inspired men, but is this so? At the time this set of discourses were assembled, that age of inspiration had been dampened, with the great romantic past far and away behind us. The Muses, obviously, worked through music, but the Irish were more often than not moved by poetry and verse, themselves rousingly similar. What is music without poetry? In terms of function, the Morrigan closes the gap between Greece and Gaul and Germania and Gaul. The Morigna is a sisterhood, Morrigan herself being a trinity. The Nornir of the northern tribes are a sisterhood and a trinity. The Norns you shall consider and remember are Urd, Verdandi, and Skult. The Morrigan is Maiden, Mother, and Crone. All speak to the same idea. Youthful glory, past, and maturity, and parentage, present, as well as advanced age, the future. To be clear, what I mean to say is that to the Irish, the Morigna and Morrigan simultaneously fill the role of the Muses and Morai as they did for the Greeks. And also to illustrate that in the North, the Norniers stand apart from a music function. The Norns imbued fate. It is likely that they imbued characteristics of inspiration also, as the Morrigan is shown to do in her multiplicity. More than this, it is curious that their expression is similar. The Morrigan appears as a lady at the ford, who is seen washing clothes in the river's tide before a fateful day. The Norns are shown spinning on their wheel. Other goddesses who are involved, but not dominatrix over fate, are Frigga and Hulda, both shown as seamstresses who spin. The distinction is important to make because the German Hulda is a dark goddess in her crone aspect, with Freya in her mother aspect. Hulda would, uh, Hulda would correspond to Morrigan's crone form, which some insist is Sheila Nagig. Freya would strike one as similar to the mother aspect of the Morrigan. In this wholesome picture there is contingence. The Norns thread, Holder and Freya spin, and the Morrigan has a whole cloth. In each of these, the cloth is representative of life. To the Germans, 
the thread represented life, but to the Celts the poetry is obtuse, but it would seem that life itself is a cloth that you put on and take off, given the clear Celtic insistence upon reincarnation. In that way we solve another issue. Superficially, the Celtic races seem absent from the cyclical time model embraced by the Germans and Greeks, opting instead for a vague linear time model with no extant creation or destruction. But they clearly believe the individual himself is a cyclical time model, where the Germans and Greeks seem to believe they're in a linear soul that is constructed and disassembled. Of course, there is room for debate, and there is always nuance. But I digress. The Parcaea are named from Parca, the Roman goddess of birth. This ties them in function to the Nornia who assign lots of fate with the birth of each child. Of the Parcae, there were three, just as there were three chief Nornia. The Morai, like the Nornia, were autonomous and beholden to none, not even the gods, who in the end bowed before their law. Since I have much more to say of the Morrigan than I would have expected when I began this journey, let me continue in this vein. It has been proposed that the Morrigan is the Lady of the Lake. There is an internal logic here, potentially, for several reasons. The Morrigan has come as the Lady at the Ford, washing clothes, and surely rivers flow from a source. Moreover, there is sense of emergence. It was expected that Morrigan had a lair beneath the earth where the dead were felt to turn dwell. There is an analogy to be drawn here with Hela, as it has been suggested before. In the Norse tale, Baldur's Drauma, Baldur's ship is set ablaze and set adrift. Hela claimed her prize at sea. This in turn reminds us of the spring goddess, become fall queen, Persephone, who rules with Hades in his underworld. She chose the slain as Hell would have. And to reach her, one had to cross the river named after Styx. Now Hela, as was mentioned in the Germanic episode, was of a substance with Nehalenia. Now as mentioned, Nehalenia was depicted with a basket of apples, and being particularly fond of dogs. This is worth mentioning, for in the Celtic realm, apples were a token of interest. They were attributes of Eman Avlah, later Avalon, which in today's speech is the island of the apples. Here is where the gods and heroes were sent to be reshaped, either after wounds or death. In Norse theology, it is Iduna who has the pleasure of doling out apples to the gods, which, you shall remember, reverse the aging process. This is worth mentioning, because it suggests a correlation with Hel, often understood as a dreary realm. However, if Hela and Nehelenia are one, then a lost function of the death goddess might be to regenerate what she takes in. Our ancestors seem to have a keen interest in resurrection through reincarnation. In a sense, our races seemed keen to have operated with a linear soul in a cyclical creation matrix. A soul might exist as a strict contingency, but adopt various forms as it takes on flesh. <clears throat> It would therefore make sense that the death goddess, often shown as a triplicate or trinity, would serve as a shepherdess over reincarnation. Often, these triple goddesses had an emphatic womb. As much Paleolithic and Neolithic art attests, it has been stipulated, much to the chagrin of perverse and unimaginative scholars, that the European womb was rather nuanced. After all, some art and sculptures clearly show the womb as an object of passion, 
with your woman depicted apparently pleasuring themselves. However, other times, the womb is depicted enigmatically, grotesque in the medieval sense of grotto-esque, invoking the cavernous sense of awe. Other times still, the womb seems to be more of a gateway, with the legs arched and inviting passage. Consider, if the concepts of underworld and rebirth were connected, then the womb was the obvious corollary. You enter the womb of the earth in death, and again from the womb of the woman in life, connecting earth there with goddess as stands for a portal between. While we dwell on the topic of death, life, rebirth, and the perpetual nirvana of the gods, I will in fact make a digression. In our stories, a major theme that separates God from man appears to be the fact that gods have a permission slip to cut through the halls without entering samsara before nirvana. The gods exist as a perpetuity and lose nothing of themselves to the causality of birth or death, and thus represent, albeit with maintenance, an infinite progression. <clears throat> infinite here being disparate from eternal, with the core meaning of infinite simply being indeterminate or indefinite, and not forever unlimited or invincible. Anyway, apples serve as a symbol of renewable youth. It's probably why European artists typically depicted the fruit of Eden as an apple. In Greek mythology, however, the apple serves a rather different role. The goddess, Eris, uses apples of discord to sow discord, if you can imagine. Rather, in Greece, the gods were believed to consume a substance called nectar. What is nectar? I don't know at this time. We frequently associate nectar with bees. Bees, it has been said, were a symbol of the goddess. Certainly in Finnish mythology, which has certain parallels with Greek, bees were considered a positive influence, as we see in the story of Ion. However, where the connection may be drawn is in the Genesis. As we learned last season, the cosmic sustainer Amaltea yielded up her horn, which became the cornucopia. This horn presumably contained nectar, which was supposed to flow from Amaltea's horns. The Nordic equivalent was Aldumla, a cow, but in Valhalla it was said that there grazed a goat who never ran dry of milk. While her name lingers in your memory, courtesy of Munin's blessing, I want to discuss exactly how Munin's blessing relates to the Morigna. Discarding the immediacy of the gender gap, Odin and Morrigan fulfill very similar roles between Germanic and Celtic peoples. Both keep ravens as familiars, both act as depositories of arcane knowledge, both are connected to the dead, both are trinitarian with according functions and forms, both act as prophetic repositories. In the Celtic lore, Morrigan is granted the rights to announce victory over the Fomorians. Odin is the Valfader, father of victory, who pits himself against Jotnar, broadly equivalent to Fomorians and Titans. Both Morrigan and Odin employ sex as a spiritual allegory, with Morrigan, a phantom queen, consummating the seasons with Dagda, god of life. Odin himself walks both sides of this line. He is a death god, but sacrifices himself to himself in shamanic trance to gain power of new life. In his Trinitarian aspect, Odin is responsible for creating the first men from trees. The gifts he gives are breath, soul, and good color. That color is red. Blood, sure, but also hair color, the pink on a woman's cheeks, and the reddening of a man's chest in the cold. Bav 
is the name Morrigan takes when she stalks heroes to pursue their gay or magical destiny. She is, in this form, the Red Goddess. Like Dagda, their redness was noted as their attribution of power. Dagda, you'll recall, was called Ruach Rofessa, the Red One of Perfected Knowledge. Both Odin and Morrigan are concerned themselves with the fates of heroes and stalked them relentlessly in a bid to secure their future destinies. Both, similarly, were keen to manipulate life and death. Morrigan had a sector in the other world where she could restore wounded warriors to new life and mend their bodies. Odin had such a hall called Valhalla. There is also the concept of sovereignty. Morrigan's name translates as Great Queen, and Odin was sovereign over his gods. Now Odin, we all know, received the runes. Those of us familiar know it was quite the ordeal. Pierced through his gut upon the tree of life, by his own hand he crucified himself. Odin sacrificed unto Odin, God alive to God of death. Screaming, he sees the runes, nine by nine, for each of the days and nights he hung, his blood feeding the bark. He fell back to the earth, renewed by occult knowledge. Each of the symbols he saw twisted in Yggdrasil's branches became one of the primal runes. A knowledge of these granted a man power to bind and loose. Odin guarded these secrets viciously, but gave them to his trusted sons, notably Heimdall, to dispense as he saw fit to mortals worthy of note. Olkma is whom the Ogham script is named for. I cannot say what the story is behind Olkma's devising the sigils of the Celts, but of them there is much to say. It is said that of the gods, Lu saw them first, what Ogma the sun-faced devised. The Ogham, like runes, were a tree alphabet. Ogham perhaps more than runes, though it can be argued that the runes themselves resemble the branches much more than Ogham. Regardless, both are arcane letters used by gods for occult purposes and shared among mortals for enlightenment. We take the extreme power of literacy for granted, and... To be fair, not all of us deserve it. That being said, there are some parallels to draw between Odin and Ochma. Ochma is a god of eloquence, so is Odin. Ochma wins battles through wit, so does Odin. It appears that they differ in that Ochma is a sun god, whereas Odin is depicted as dark and gloomy, a night sentinel. <clears throat> but is this fair? In a word, no. Ochma Sunface parallels Odin in this for several reasons. Odin wears his starlit robe, but he also possesses the golden helmet. Gold was always associated with sunlight because of the way it glittered, and that is one of the reasons it was so highly valued. However, where the similarities really shine is with one of Odin's many sons, Bragi. Bragi is said to have had his very tongue carved into with runes of elegance. Now, Ochmios. Ochma was said to have had his tongue pierced by golden chains, which latched into the ears of his followers. These should be understood as metaphors, as metaphor is something our evolutionarily regressive brethren struggle with. Caved-in head brainlets rejoice. The big brain centrist Nibirike is here to save you. There is a surviving tendency in alchemy, 
itself a repository of hodgepodge esoterica to equate the golden chain or cord to the spiritual tether the inspiration for this is ancient consider a passage from the old testament book of ecclesiastes wherein solomon notes that the golden cord is loosed the silver bowl broken and the cistern shattered at the well it is the it is death of which he speaks ecclesiastes speaks to the death of the great soul of spiritual malaise of creeping nihilism and faithlessness a fate worse than the inevitable decay of the corpse you leave behind o oh, son of man would that the maggots take you and spare you your corpse lest the very dwarves from whom maggots were sculpted you become petty and debased to solomon Ochma, sunface whose words are as golden sunlight sent forth their chains enrapturing his clan in so doing they share his very soul this is no great revelation mystery cults are much discussed in relation to the new testament but they were not any more new than they were in solomon king's time similarly by stamping his tongue with the runes whose very name means mystery we understand that the act of speaking for bragi would have brought enlightenment to those who heard him there is another aspect of this mystery and that is devotional mutilation in some ways the personal defamation of a spiritual candidate meant that he was mocked by the gods just ask varg about sacred gimps whatever i have discussed this elsewhere see my essay on sacrificial deities as a prime example the basis is that in the case of a god such a defect as bragi's tongue or ochma's odin's mangled eye socket or tir Nduadu's savaged arm are symbolic odin is a god of prophecy his eyes are his weapon tir Nduadu, swordsman the hands were their manhood bragi and ochma soothsayers their tongues are their sharpest swords to risk their mutilation means that these gods are willing to gamble the very essence in pursuit of will to power odin's ability to prophesy cost him an eye and losing an eye his remaining eye sees farther than two in sacrificing his hand tear exemplifies bravery in a way no other god could and so forth part of odin's prophecy came from his use of the meat of poetry in this regard he is similar to zeus with the nectar both gods are responsible for distributing this nourishing drink in the greek one gets the impression that the nectar had less to do with the healing of bodies of the immortal gods as sustaining the souls and in the norse the meat of poetry feeds the soul and inspires the spirit before we move too far away from this cluster of thought when it comes to the death of the body and the transmigration of the soul water has a tremendous motif in relation to the rebirth process waters of life are timeless however Greece is sometimes singled out as being a solitary keeper of a ferryman. It's bollocks. However, Finnish mythology had a river of death, Tuonela, I think. However, in one obscure story in Norse religion called Harbard's Fleeting, you encounter Odin, disguised as the titular ferryman. Thor comes rumbling about and wishes to cross the river, but when the ferryman refuses, the two get into a pitched battle of boasts and wits which exposit the beneficiary traits of each god with thor seemingly oblivious to harbard's true nature functional allegory aside wherein odin bespeaks his occult dealings in pursuit of wisdom and thor of his absolute violence against hostile aliens there is another element that seems neglected 
In this guise of ferryman, Odin betrays his ultimate function as chooser of the slain. By refusing to ferry his son, Thor, by deeming him unworthy to cross a river symbolic of death, Odin acts as Charon. Odin refuses to allow his son to cross into death's domain. Geographically speaking, the motifs were fairly stable. There was a river, an underworld, and a field of paradise. Even in the Old Testament, there was a river outside Eden, and one gets the impression Eden was a garden planted in a field. Speaking of water and waters of life, there's the question of the sea god. Our peoples were nomadic, yet the sea gods play a decidedly backseat role to the major players. One would think that given the value of water to our race that the sea gods would hire hold a place in our pantheon. Rather the opposite. They appear to diminish as the mythopoeic cycles turn. In the Norse, who were no strangers to seafaring, Njord and Aeir were woefully underrepresented. So too were the Greeks for Poseidon and Oceanus. Oceanus, whose very body held Gaia and received her as terra firma. Yet Aegir and Nord are more party hosts than gods or heroes. And so it was, too, for Mananon, who hosted feasts at Amain of Lach. True, Poseidon was going to be king of Athens at one time, but even there it was a competition of who would be more hospitable to the people, and Poseidon lost. I surmise that the element of water was more important to the old European as it was with Earth, so when the Aryans brought the triumphant sky gods, the sea god, along with the earth mother, might have lost clout. But nevertheless, water maintained an incredible symbolic motif and power illustrated perfectly by the Celtic well and lake goddesses, whose prime example is Coventina, who reclined on a leaf in the lake but was accompanied by two maidens with pitches who treated with water. This reminds us at once of the Norns who used waters from the well of Erd, the deep past, to keep Yggdrasil, the world tree, alive. They too are shown, drawing water from the well to do it, with their pitches. Similarly, the Muses were said to tend springs, and Heimdall, the Norse god, had nine mothers, for it was believed there were nine waves, with a goddess for each. Some take this to mean he was born nine times in succession before reaching his final form. But let us speak now of the Earth Mother. Mother Earth remains to us this day, and she has been with every European tribe in her own way since, and will continue to do so. Among the Greeks and Norse, Mother Earth was a literal goddess, Gaia in Greece, and Yord in Norse mythology, and Terra in Rome. These, now, are distinctive, but in Celtic myths, most goddesses are goddesses of Earth or water. It seems reasonable to assume that this was once the norm for all European peoples before the integration of the Aryan sky gods. It also makes sense that the various earth or water goddesses should take on a singular representative persona. The Celtic peoples, not receiving sky gods as easily as Germans, would have had no need for explicit earth goddesses, just as Germans did not need explicit sky gods, where the Celts make a special note of their fleeting few. Which, I think explains why Gaia Terra and Yord stand apart, why they might represent consolidations of generations of earlier earth goddesses. In a sense, varying versions of an archetypical goddess were reunited into a singular monad. 
Of course, in time, even these monads were further refined until we come to the Mother Earth figure of the English, then and now. In England, a sublime syncretism happened. Free elements of Greek were incorporated into an Anglo-Saxon worldview which was seemingly imbued with Celtic mysticism. Frankly, it sounded like a very comfortable place to hold your religion. Now this in no way diminishes their properties, for Yord was the mother of Thor, and Gaia gave her body to become the living planet upon which we breathe. To the Celts, blood and soil were sovereign realities, and the Earth Mother appears to be the sovereign spirit. To the Irish, that would be Aaron, who took over for Danan. Danan, you might recall, was known as Don to the earlier British, and probably still to the Gauls that had come to Britain from what is now France. At any rate, the role of the Earth Goddess was often neatly tied into the role of Death Goddess. In some places, Hela grew apples. Ah, and we'll get to that soon, I promise. The Earth herself had caverns, wombs, and there was an intricate web of, of intrigue that related the Earth, death, and rebirth with the mythical womb. In some art, guardians of death were depicted as well-fed women with their legs situated as gates to pass through, and the wombs quite ajar, waiting to receive a host. Other art showed the womb as a cave, awaiting inhabitants to emerge from death and deathly earth. Likely is that oracular cults tied in some mysterious way to the death goddesses. Consider the Greek oracles, who lived in caves and uttered prophecies that often required priests to comprehend. One might also think of the witch of Endor from the Bible, who uh, seems to have a very similar constitution to the oracular cults. Um, I, I could go on, but this is quite frankly a side note that's not in my original script. But there you have it. It shares a firm parallel with the adventures of Odin, who constantly seeks out the Volvar, or risen seeresses. It is intoned that they rise from the dead, but given the climate of attitudes regarding the inner earth, a witch in a cave is symbolic of a witch shepherding death. So, perhaps Odin dragged the Volvar from Barrows to inquire. Mind you, still in Ireland, the deathly goddesses clearly reside within the earth. Moreover, in the Celtic mind, Babel, or else obscure prophecy, was a clear markation of otherworldly knowledge. Hence, the woman who stands on one foot, hands locked, with an eye closed, to symbolize being between life and death, underworld and overworld in order to utter fates. Now, speaking of obscure Celtic goddesses about whom I wish I knew more, there is the titillating theory that Skoak of the Scottish is in a way related to Scotty of the Norse. Now, Scotty, in a sense, can be seen, in a way, like the goddess Nemesis, you might recall Nemesis was famous to the Romans. Her role seems exclusively focused on righting wrongs, avenging her father, avenging her new family, avenging Njord's foot, whatever. Feminine avenging spirits are a distinctive European element, with fetches or fugia being shown as white and black robed women following a man. You might guess which roles the white and black robed figures take. Valkyries, in a sense, are akin to Furies, in that they deal death, only the Furies have a decidedly moralistic bent and don't work for anyone. Given a woman's love of citing rules and pronouncing judgments, 
it is not a far-fetched to make. Now, before we drift too terribly far, I should like to make mention of Merlin in relationship to the North. You are familiar with the idiot notion of Vikings with their horned helmets, yeah? You're of course aware of the fact that this moron idea came from a pair of horned helmets depicted in artwork found in a grave mound. Of course you are. Scholars surmise that the horned helmets depicted were likely aspects of Odin in his ritual and occult mode. It's worth mentioning that Merlin is depicted as actively wearing furs and robes with a helm of stag's horns to work his wild magic. It is unlikely that the two are unrelated. Now, before you huff and puff and blow the house down, do recall that the majority of ancient Celtic artifacts were scrounged up from Danish soil, indicating that the Celts were closely related to the Nords before the migration. So there we have it. Hela's name now refers to brightness. So does the Irish Brigids. In Irish mythology, Brigid was a goddess of light, whose task it was to seize spring from the clutches of the Kala every year so that the crops could grow and the cattle graze. However, their, simi uh, their similarities begin to taper there, in that Hela became a chthonic goddess, where Brigid remained largely terrestrial, if not celestial. In this, she has more in common with the German, Roman, and Greek goddesses. Now, an important function all cultures shared was that the hearth was regarded as central to the home, and the home to prayer. It is said that our ancestors preferred worship in nature. This is true, but a sacred space indoors was always reserved. That would become the domestic church of today, arguably the only church safe from the throes of globalism, assuming that the family in charge of the domestic church has enough wit to resist Zog. The hearth goddesses are Brigid, Var, Vesta, and Hestia. It is presumptive that Hestia and Vesta are the same goddess, merely geographically refined, with their functions and forms overlapping. She had a place in every hearth and was party to a sacred flame. That flame had to be kept in perpetuity and was rekindled every year in special procession. Sometimes the symbolic coal was used to kindle other sacred fires, so that it could be said that the same flame burned throughout the empire. That being said, the similarities between Irish and Greco-Roman customs are uncanny. Brigid had her temple, where the flame was kept in perpetuity, and while it was a separate flame, there was another fire which lit all Samhain fires in Ireland. Now Brigid, like Vesta, concerned herself greatly with domestic matters. She helped the Druids recall genealogies. She inspired poetry and craft. In this, she was quite similar to the Nordic Var, who was said to hear all prayers muttered over the hearths and to witness all private contracts. Nothing is said of her except that she punished those who broke faith. Another aspect to consider is that a role of the hearth is the transmission of culture. Religion was bred and developed in the home and exported to the village, where the priest formalized it, and the villagers imported it back into the home as a refined product. Eventually, when the state evolved, you would conclude this cycle with the state, at which point the state would re-import culture back into the home. It was an organic cycle. In the beginning, the hearth was all, 
but as society became more complex, public worship increased. The hearth remained a place to conduct true worship. Annals of Rome indicate that public worship was a show, more a communal activity, but heartfelt prayers and spirituality were reserved for the hearth. It makes sense, then, when we hear that Var hears every heartfelt prayer by the hearth. Or when it's made clear that Brigid helps men remember their lineages and teaches things like metalwork and crafting. Those are important Celtic skills whose transmission contribute to culture, eh? Now, this is an important learning lesson. Often, the tired refrain is that we are but a shadow of our ancestors. In addition to our being our ancestors replayed for a modern audience, thereby negating their foul logic, there is something to nevertheless give thought to. We are left with the clear impression that our ancestors were hardier and in a way happier than us. I contest the happier indication, but this I will well agree with. Our ancestors were probably more complete. It behoves us to ask why. They had concentric culture. The Odal, or Oikos, being the holistic home, was the center of all life. Beyond this was the Demos, or Folk, being the people. These comprised the Polis, or this kingdom, being the state. In each case, these were continued, uh, considered one organism, continuing from home as far out as the people might roam. In the past, the apultry of a hearth goddess would have kept a balance. Via the hearth goddess, whose statutes informed the public res uh, registry of worship, and in turn was hallowed and influenced by them, the state would live in your home. By encouraging ancestor cult, the hearth goddess also kept you in tune with your people. So you see, it forms a concentric circle. Thereby, for our kind, there was one social organism comprised of organic parts. The home was the soul, the folk, the heart, and the kingdom, the lungs. Today, there is no hearth for most, no connection that ties these elements together, and so everything appears to be a disparate mass of disconnected, confusing elements. It's all very tragic, really, when you think about it. It's no wonder, then, when we consider Rome's portents of how Rome would stand as long as Vestas fire burned. When the hearths went silent, Roman culture died. It flickers, still, in Catholic prayer candles, just as Hestia's flame flickers in Orthodox prayer candles. But their light casts a bigger shadow than their fire can dispel, and at times it is a weak shadow. And as these candles are gradually snuffed and traded for cheap globalist tinsel, there is a growing, gnawing dread that consumerism promises to fulfill only if you buy just one more product. Get excited for this one last thing. But that cycle, that cycle never ends. At least, by bringing back a system our ancestors would recognize, we would have a closed system that does not require infinite regression to product and to dopamine. So, is what the naysayers say true? Are we so far removed from the hearth that it must remain cold? No, of course not. There's never any justifiable excuse for nihilism. That is a trick. A vile and odious lie, slander of the weakest and yet curiously most effective caliber. No, Brigitte's candles are still lit by Catholic nuns, and you, you can easily erect a lararium in your house if you choose, like a good European. There you can venerate the gods of your choosing, or commemorate your dead. All things the hearth goddess would have encouraged. Who knows? 
Maybe lighting that half fire will shine a light on an aspect of your struggle to seize culture that you would not have expected. It has mine, and it has my wife's. My ongoing prayer for which I have offered sacrifice is that it will do so for my son, and that all the other children I hope to bring with my wife into this world, that this prayer will serve us as well. A world that can only change for the better if we all of us who call each other brother become paterfamilias and light the hearth fire together. Think about it. Forget about your high and mighty notions and infinite reasons why nothing would ever work because reasons. Let's say you raise your son, his cradle to your grave, with culture in the home, with stories and ideas. That becomes his life, his reality. Now who cares if you have a funny feeling at first? Who cares if you have doubts about this or questions about that? Think about your own childhood. Chances are, if you're like me, you got to a certain point and realized that there's a black hole where your culture should be. That hurts, man, I'm telling you. Why do it to your sons and daughters? This hearth culture is more than setting tablecloths or putting away dishes, though that ambiance provides and improves quality of life. It is also the moral education, experiential lessons, and the feeling of true bonding and love. Even beyond love, it is the feeling of awe and of wonder, the thought that we don't have to live this way, and that in time we will make it better. Or even merely that life on its own is good, quite good. We can have what we need, and we don't need more. You don't get that from a home ruled by the enemy and their servants, education, media, and the court. You get it from real culture, bred at home, formed at home, continued, shaped, and built upon at home. This is something that your children will recognize as surely as we know the pain of absence. You should know that less than a hundred years ago, a vast tract of American children shared mythos was Greek mythology in the Bible. To make an example, as late as 1955, and I know that in many parts that tradition lasted much later. I myself was taught Greek and Mesopotamian myth as a child. It was an empty vessel, mind you, taught with no enthusiasm, with no gusto. But there you have it. So tell me again why our children can't have that and more. Why can't we give them everything I'm giving you, and more, scaled as they grow older? What would their futures be with a more complete appraisal of a mythic life from birth? They, in turn, remember good times from their childhoods and seek to give that to their children. Where does it all begin? Again, in the home. Not even our ancestors, who almost to a T had a healthier relationship with their respective states than us, didn't trust the state enough to quit education in the home or snuff the hearth fire. Let that sink in. Our ancestors did not trust the state with the education of their children. In this, the generation of the 68ers are the most profoundly ignorant generation to ever wear the proverbial dunce hat. So, the hearth fire, wherever you care to admit it, is a real and important thing that must be preserved. Light it. Our culture has new life. Keep it alight. That light burns brighter into the future. Light the hearth fire and remind me the fourteen words. They go together like hand in hand, or man and woman. Now, moving forward. One is inclined to view the queen of the gods, as expressed in Greece, Rome, and Scandinavia, quite differently. 
After all, Frigga and Hera appear very distinct from one another. Frigga seems loving and warm, whilst Hera seems contrite, distant, vengeful, fickle. This may have more to do with the classical Greek attitudes regarding women than the goddess herself. I submit to you the name Hera itself. Hera may in fact be a title and not a name. It has been supposed Hera is an old word meaning queen. It is furthermore possible that this name would be related to Erolots or Erolots, the enigmatic P.I.E. reconstruction from which the common words for ruler are derived. Note that the German Herr is descendant of Erolots, as does the Nordic Herriar. Both refer, both refer in their states to lordliness. Also worthy of note is the fact that there is a word referring to the collective of gods in Etruria called Isaras, which is principally similar in form to the Nordic Aesir and the Vedic Asuras. It is possible, indeed probable, that these may be linked. If this distinction can be made, then there is the potential for there being a similar situation with Hera as to the Nordic Frigga. Freya was a title. It meant lady. Some believe, with due cause, that Freya herself is a title of Frigga. Only the northern German distinguishes between the two, where every other Germanic tribe had a variant of one goddess, where there was Frigga, Freya, among others. This option becomes viable when you consider the Etruscan Harentina. Harentina was similar to Hera in many aspects and respects, but was regarded as the Romans concomitant to the day to be a guise of Venus. Some believe Harentina, in fact, was a title used by Venus. If the Mediterranean and Nordic goddesses once shared the title before the progeny of Erolots became masculine in the north, then we might infer the utility of the characters of Frigga and Hera as a singular goddess represented with geographic and evolutionary variants. Furthermore, you might also work in several other facets of etymology. Hera was married to Zeus. Zeus evolves as Tia does, from the reconstructed P.I.E. Tioats, which also gives us Dew, as in Diopata, Jupiter. Given that Tia itself was a cognomen of Odin, it might lead us back to the same progenitory of the primal god and goddess, which have in the Low Countries been called Tsu and Tsitsa. Something to consider. A brother and a friend asked me, perhaps with his tongue in his cheek, and perhaps not, where exactly Lucifer fit into all this? Lucifer is a Promethean figure, no doubt, as we both know. It has been said by some cultists, perplexing me in my youth, that Lucifer was the one true god of Europe. The passing statement has been lodged in the dustier corners of my cerebellum ever since. At the time, the statement seemed pointless and edgy, and, even now, the amount of preface that the supposition requires makes the explanation arduous at best. But here we are, willing to be fastidious in our approach and bold in our quest to plumb the depths. Lucifer, the light-bearer. The root of his name is Lux in Latin. We all know this, yeah? What is the meaning of Lu's name but light? Lugus was the Gaulish, and we know that the Gaulish and Latin shared many cognates, as with Rex and Rig, both being king. And who was Lugus? God of the dawn, we recall, the rising sun. So was Lucifer called the morning star. Given the generally over underwhelming, I'm sorry, underwhelming glut 
by which I mean absence of material on Lucifer named in scripture, one must assume he is a post-scriptural fabrication, along with Mephistopheles and Baphomet, with the latter being a combination of several European beast-god archetypes, such as Pan and Hearn. Though it can be argued even these borrow Promethean archetypes and twist good into evil, much as one would expect a devil to do. There is another point, wherein I shall add that to the Norse, Leusalfheim was a heavenly home. How are they tied together in theme and in substance? Listen, and I shall speak my mind. All of the above are cognate to our English light. Locht was the old English. Licht is the modern German. You should see where they all liken to one another. It is not hard. That said, Lubus is lesser known than Lu, but it is worth guessing their similitude. Most of the Irish gods were carried on the backs of, of itinerant Celts anyway, with many scholars blanketly assuming that the Irish gods represent an uncorrupted form of the Gaulish gods touched by Interpretatio Romana. These same scholars neglect to calculate the transformative effect of travel and migration on the Irish gods, whose very myths stink of vagabonds' sandals. I digress. Lu was a god of light. He became king of the gods, a light above all. He was Samildanach, a title of reverence indicating his aptitude in all things. In this he is enlightened. He came to the court of the Tuata de Danan and won kingship over the mangled and defective Nuadu by right of superiority. In another tale, Lu appears to a woman in her dreams and inseminates her as virgin mothers are wont to be done. In this way, Lu becomes Satanta, as Satanta becomes Kukelan, Ayelan's premier mythic hero. Lu, in a way, was the ultimate ancestral god to Kukelan, literally becoming his own progeny. If you think about it, there is a dire implication here. In the Nordic lands, you should understand, there were a variety of elves. Uh, these were called Alpha in the old tongue. These were much like the Sheet in the Fay of Ireland, you see. The elves are ethereal creatures, but were once known as ancestral spirits of warriors. Some of the Alpha went below the ground and became Svartalfa, sometimes called dwarves or dvergar. These were tainted ancestral spirits, with dvergar being specifically noted as having physical bodies sculpted from decomposing maggots. A fitting description of crippled devils with a lust for gold and usury. Now, some luminous spirits were went. Uh, some luminous spirits went on to become Lusalfa or light elves. These were seen as being much like the Christians imagined angels. Angelos, mind you, was a Greek term for messenger, and even the old Christians argued if angels were risen men or lesser gods. Still, the Lusalfa were said to be beings sheathed in light, a light that disguised their shape. So did St. Paul view the celestial body later Christians imposed on the, uh, on the seraphic angelos. The ascended ancestor spirits were assumed to be sheathed in light, as Lu was the personification of light as well as an ancestor to heroes. So we see in the shape of Lucifer, a figure who shines as a light in dark places this morning star, who enlightens the fatigued and weary. But where Christians saw the devil, our people saw a saint. Lu shared good company with Prometheus and Odin, 
who both drew up enlightenment from the dark and deathly shadows, and suffered for their painful initiations. Now, say what you will of the broader spiritual implications, it is inescapable that to our ancestors the liturgical season exposited a natural drama. There were no mere seasons. The entirety of the year was a passion play, and our ancestors were proxy participants. Moreover, all our peoples shared in the concept that there were gods who rose and fell with the seasons in perpetuity. There was a drama involved as well. To the Greeks, it was the maiden Persephone who, in her laudable innocence, went picking flowers and swallowed whole by lusty Hades into the earth. She was tricked into eating the fruit of the dead, being pomegranate, and was thus bound by natural law to stay. She was allowed to return to Gaia, but was compelled to return to Hades. She would return in the fall and winter when those ensued, and she would come again in the spring and summer would follow. She eventually came to cherish her role as Queen of the Dead, and came to much resemble Hela in this respect, a quiet and dark goddess, replete with foreboding. Moreover, also in Greece, for those who had not heard of Persephone, there was the fact that Apollo, the sun god, routinely traveled to Hyperborea in the winter, presumably to bring the sun with him there. Similar in scope is the tale of Baldur, while not directly a solar deity, Balder is deific in his partial role. It is clear that mirth and gaiety stem from him. When Loki tricked Balder's brother Hold into killing him, so also did mirth die in Asgard. There are no more recorded jokes from his death until the time of Ragnarok. Bear in mind, the world was created in spring-like conditions from melting ice and mist. The world similarly perishes after an ensuing winter, and it is clear Balder plays a role in the maintenance of the Nine Worlds. It is my belief that sheer will is what kept the mortal coil aloft, for Balder's death represents the loss of face and nerve. Nevertheless, after Ragnarok, Balder returns into a new creation. This satisfies the requisite motif of seasonal conflict tying into resurrection. There are other Germanic traditions less defined and attested to, such as those fertility rites in England of the waxen goddess and waning priest, but none as dramatic as Baldur's Draumar. I'd like to give a quick note about Baldur before moving on. There is an allegory to be made here. We spoke elsewhere about the potential equivalency of Hera with Frigga. As Hera might be interchangeable with Aphrodite in the same way Frigga is with Hera. Now, if we can... If we can successfully make the case that Hera, Great Queen, and Frigga, Great Queen, are aspects of the love goddess Freya Aphrodite, then this would mean that Baldur, being the son of the goddess of love and motherhood, is similar to Cupid, who is also now to be son of the goddess of love and motherhood. In many ways, the roles of Cupid and Baldur intersect. Cupid, with his arrow, brings love and mirth, and causes relationships to bloom. Balder, with his innocence, brings laughter and mirth, and incidentally, marriages had been held in his hall. Furthermore, it was precisely an arrow that brought about Balder's downfall, and an arrow is what Cupid uses to bring falls down. Cupid's Greek name was Eros, from which we get erotic love. 
but one gets the idea, given Eros's presence in prehistory, that Eros originally was a kind of generative light, in the same way Balder is a sustaining light. Something to think about. Finally, I wish to draw attention to the potential connection to Belenos, from Bel, Shining, Balder, and Baal. All of the names, and to a degree, maybe Baelors, indicate some form of light. Now we consider the Celtic races. You had the idea that the maiden goddess Brigid, whose name is related to brightness, was in perpetual warfare with the crone goddess Kala. Think about Kali, if you will. When came the time for winter, the Kala would smash the ground with her hammer and curse the ground to become hard as iron, yielding no fruit nor herb. Brigid would marshal her power in the spring and sprinkle her holy water on the ground, thawing it. More than this, there is a drama between Arthur and Morgan, or Morgana, who is an obvious incarnation of the Morrigan. Arthur was likely once a god. His symbol was the bear, which pre-Aryan shamans saw as a celestial or luminous being. So it went with the Finns and the Great Bear, you shall recall. Arthur was celebrated by Merlin, and heralded by him, himself likely having once been a god but who serves as a shaman in the tradition of Hearn. Morgan eventually takes Arthur, a god of starlight, thrice removed, into her kingdom, the underworld, thrice removed. It is said some day that Arthur shall return in Britain's day of need, a day that the Britons perhaps expected to sound like a Saxon Ragnarok. This is noteworthy because Arthur participated in a boar hunt into the underworld when living and rescued Mabonius, who was not but Mavon, god of light in disguise. The motif is clear. Arthur breaks the sun of hell, of uh, the sun out of hell, and lets light come back to earth. He himself is a light unto himself, trapped in Avalon, a land where souls await rebirth. When he returns, he shall bring a kind of light with him. If we accept that the inclement Aryans brought the sky gods with them, then it behoves us to look at what similarities the Pantheans had. The Aryan sky gods were hierarchical. This much we can see. There is a king of the gods. He himself tends to embody the sky. His close relation is the storm god, and often their lines are blurred. Some other times the role is defined, redefined, or even traded. The syncretism can be difficult to find, but there is a commonality at the beating heart of the Aryan memory, conjoined as it is with the heaving lungs of European thought. God is at the root of the matter. However, this God is not the one whom we have become accustomed to looking for, with the personal pronouns all capsed and in Victorian era. We are looking into the Proto-Indo-European realm now, P-I-E for short. Tiawats is one of the oldest reconstructed names, and yes, you may presume that owing reconstructed language, we may not know with objective certainty the ID of the God. However, the science is compelling enough to embrace, P.I.E. being cross-referenced from a number and a plethora of cognate languages traced backwards to their own progressions. We know that Tiawats would become Deus in Latin and Theos in Greek. In Scandinavia, it became Tia. In, old in, uh, in, in High German, Tziu, and in Old English, Tziu. These, again, are supposedly related to the Vedic Daos. 
In Greece, the personal name Tiawatz became Zeus. You can very easily see the progression of sound from Tiawatz to Zeus. In Rome, it became Tiopata and was eventually contracted to Jupiter. Now, here comes some speculation, but such is life. The P.I.E. Tiawatz and his subsequent transmutations were likely a title. This is made obvious by the case of Tiopata, whose personal name was Jove. However, an interesting case is that so it also goes with Odin. Odin is called Tyr many times. Bear with me. I know some of you in the Tearsman camp will object, and perhaps I shall overrule you. We shall see. In the case of Odin, he has many nicknames. One of his foremost is Hangatir, often translated as the Hanged God or God of the Hanged. So, for those not familiar, there is a camp that believes the rightful God-King is Tyr because of the etymology intoned. However, methinks we can have our cake and eat it too, unless you're diabetic or on keto. A common argument. A common argument. The descriptions of injuries are succinct and vivid. Tyr lost a hand to the wolf. Odin lost an eye to the well. Consider the Irish god Nuadu. I have made the case before that it is interesting, the parallels. Both might have been kings of the gods. Both lost a hand fighting giants. Both are now no longer kings of the gods. Now, this seems to indicate that if they were mutually recognizable, that would leave Odin out. However, there is an obscure tendency in Irish witchcraft in which one assumes a stance of one leg, one eye, and one hand. In a sense, it seems that to work these magics one halves themselves, or truly seek better balance. Consider also Odin's profound absence from the story of Tyr losing his hand. If there was a mass campaign and conspiracy to dethrone Tyr and replace him with Odin, one might assume that Odin would gain all of the favorable tales. After all, Odin sacrificed more than a hand for less on occasion. Alas, alack, onward we go. Now, speaking of the Celts, there was the obscure deity Taranus, about whom I wish I knew more. He was clearly equated with Jupiter by the Romans, and the reasoning is clear. He carried a thunderbolt and was a sky god. But he also carried a wheel, which connects him to another facet above and beyond the obvious importance of chariots, a Gaulish invention. And that is a connection of the storm god motif, a frequently blurred line, a fact that can't be mentioned enough. Now, of these gods, Zeus seems to be the only storm god. In Roman mythology, Jove is depicted akin to Zeus, but arguably has much less to do with weather. Odin and the rest appear content to leave sky-kinging to others. There is a blurred line, as I said, between sky-god and storm-god, as is the case with the slice of pie that gives us a number of other gods. You have the other root word, Turetzatz, which gives us Thor, and the odd Finnish god Turetzatz. We'll start with Thor from Turetzatz. Thor of the Norse has an extremely well-defined and attested set of characteristics. He's a big son of a gun. He has flaming red hair, a beard, and flashing eyes. He's a wicked burly bastard. So big and so strong that he cannot cross Bryfrost, a rainbow bridge, without shattering it. He summons rain and lightning. He carries a hammer, Mjolnir, which is so strong he needs a lifting belt and a pair of gloves to properly wield it. Thor, my friends, is apparently a trans-god, transitioning from powerlift to crossfit. Bad jokes aside, this puts Thor in an archetypical category with many gods. He is commonly associated with Jove Zeus, and to a degree also Taranus. 
all reasonable, no? Thor and Jupiter, easily done, yeah? Thor and Jove, control the weather and possess the lightning bolt. Thor and Taranis, also easy. Taranis is shown holding a wheel, presumably a wheel from a wagon or a chariot. Thor is also explicitly mentioned as riding in a chariot. Now, there's another bridge to cross with Thor. There are several competing models that Thor could pass for in Celtic religion, notably the Dachda. Thor has a hammer, in English called the Miller, crusher, that's what Miller means. With Mjolnir, Thors want to shatter bone and generally murder enemies in the most delightfully savage of ways. Crush them into meal, product of the mill, sure. Break, smash, crush, strangle, Thor. Thor represents in a way the violent power fantasies of the man with protective instincts and tendencies. There was a reason Thor was favored by families. In a way, he made a better candidate for Allfather than Odin if only for the fact that the average father loved him. Dachta, as promised, Dachta has a club, which with a stroke he can kill nine men, and with a stroke bring nine to life. In the story of Thialfi's indenture, Thor uses his hammer to bring one of his goats back to life after being eaten. This returns us to the Celtic myth in two ways. It seems obviously reminiscent of Dachta's club, but there is also the question of one facet of Irish myth worth mentioning. That would be the resurrected pigs on Bagodnew, the smith god under Dachta's rule. This pig was killed and eaten at a special feast in Emain of Lach, but awoke in the morning with skin again as if no harm had befallen it. You might protest, these are all very dissimilar. Are they now? Consider the vast time frame over which our race spread. The unknowable past before the hypothetical blending of the Aryan and European produced a set of core myths that were translated across a thousand years of vagabond's dreams. Thus, with the span of a thousand miles or more and a thousand years of settling, for the Nordic and Celtic tales to emerge separately from a long-muddied ancestral memory, with differences of opinion should be expected. That the degree of similitude is so high is what should be considered shocking. Elementally, you have a weather god, which both Thor and Darkta are. Remember, Darkta is a title, it means good god, and he is good, for he leads the weather. So it was with Thor, who, while not called the good god, was always known as one, and seen as the one closest to mankind. Now, is it a stretch to assume that as time went on, the doctor might have evolved from Taranus as the chariot sped him across Gaul and toward his Irish fate. Is it that hard to imagine that at this same time he traveled east and north to Scandinavia and became Thor, who never quit his chariot when he reached his destination? The god traveled with a weapon which harnessed the weather, and he had in his retinue a mean to resurrect livestock, a motif. What began as a pig might have become a goat, depending on what livestock were available to the people telling the story. For the same reason, in the Greek versus North Northern creation story, it is not so troublesome that in Greece it was a goat, Amaltea, who suckled Zeus, a god, and in the Norse, a cow, Adumla, which suckled Emir, a giant. Now, there is also the question of Sukalos, the good striker, a Gaulish god, supposed by many to be the Dachda. Like Dachda, Sukalos has been suggested as a title and not a name leaving very important questions. 
What was the storm god's name, really, to the Celts? Tyrannus, too, seems more title than name. What's more, both Doctor and Tyrannus appear to stem for a mutual word for god, which may yet relate to the old Tiawats, Danan, too, and Dawn. Danan, you shall recall, as in the Tuatha de Danan, are the closest the Irish have to a traditional pantheon, albeit less defined as you like. For so go the Irish. The etymology of Dana, or Danu, has been described at length. But she does appear to be a goddess of exceptional antiquity. It is possible that she was a river goddess, given her connection with rivers and water bodies. Worth mentioning is that when Thor travels, he is routinely going by river. And while it is true that the rivers have been called the roads of old Europe, by the time the tales gained traction, the wheel, of course, had been invented, and the Gauls invented the roads to put them on. The river, thus, was not only an important means of transportation. It's something to chew on, at any rate. Baldur has been discussed in relation to a dark goddess, and it has been mentioned that Baldur himself is an eternal archetype. Call him a suffering son. Jesus Christos was the last avatar I can see, recognizing in this line. But that line is a long one, and a proud one. The suffering son is connected to the light, if only esoterically. In Norse mythology, Baldur's light is the light of innocence. His character reeks of it. His sheets must have been dry as the desert in heat. He himself, despite his nomenclature, presented meekly the apple of, of, uh, of his parents' eye. His death was the primal catalyst of Ragnarok. The entire Norse world unravels at his slaying. Tensions have been mounting for aeons. The gods have kept peace and order while Loki has undermined their efforts with constant tricks and insults and cowardice, and then the giants and other hostile races have threatened it outright. While not a prominent figure, we learn quickly in Baldur's drama that this boy god has held the god worlds together with his innocence and charm. Laughter dies with him, and that loss is worse than the loss of Eden's apples, worse than the loss of Tyr's hand or Odin's eye. You are left with the impression that if only Baldur had lived, then Ragnarok would have never come. The listless gods succumb to fates that seem unbecoming. Odin, swallowed at last by the wolf, Heimdall, shanked in the liver by Loki like he was an amateur beat cop, Thor, blinded by the serpent of the seven seas. In each case, the gods were bested by creatures that were made out with painful obviousness to be their lessons in every preceding tale. But why? Balder, whose archetype is innocence, was lost. Without his innocence, the gods quickly became dour and jaded. They seemed resigned to their fates. This is true. I've said it many times before. One of the most enduring and endearing themes of Norse mythology is the ability of the gods to stand firm and strong with their backs straight and their faces bright in the face of doom. Uh, it is inspirational, especially today in clown world. Now, there is another aspect, and this is the necessity of cyclical time. Consider, if you will, several vantages. In the Vedic tales, one anticipates the Kali Yuga. This is often compared with Ragnarok, both tales are supposed to have four seasons before the end, and are followed by a rebirth. In the Vedic tales, the Kali Yuga is precipitated by the titular goddess Kali, 
As a point of interest, there is the Celtic crone goddess Kala, which might have some relation. In one Celtic world, the seasons were a cosmic struggle between light and darkness. Brigid, the bright one, opposes Kala, who shatters the ground with her hammer, turning it harder than iron. Fruitless. Kala is very much a disruptive and entropic presence in the Celtic lore. Kali, as I understand her, is similar in that she uses destruction to return order. The Kali Yuga happens to reset a decaying world, much like a forest fire inspires huge forest growth. And Ragnarok? Ragnarok is an end preceded by endless winter. From this time, a spring and a new world of apparent summer. The cosmic struggle seems clearer in this context. Alas, alack, my friend, I must digress. It was the suffering sun, the point of light we must discuss. Separate from Sol Invictus archetype, embodied in Apollo and Sunna, who know no suffering, there is also the light which stands to lose to darkness. After all, there is no hiding the fact that bright Balder is killed by Holder, whose name relates to darkness, a blind brother to boot, the very obvious embodiment of ignorant darkest as an entropic force. Hold was not evil on his own count. He was a tragic hero, as darkness often is, manipulated by evil to do evil things. This he shares in common with Kali Ma, who herself is not evil, but is seen as evil by those who would twist nature to their own designs. In Celtic myth, there is Mavon, about whom less than desired is known. Mavon, however, we do know, is represented light. But he was also kidnapped and hidden in the underworld. One might imagine this occurred in conjunction with the Kalak raising her hammer to smite the earth. In Welsh mythology, Arthur has to rescue Mavon from the underworld, a probable reenactment of a cosmic drama. This might survive in Celtic mythology as the summer and winter king, in which dueling gods caused the seasons akin to Brigid and Kalech, and the spring and fall queens. Note also that even the Greeks have a similar notion. Apollo, the obvious candidate for the summer king in Sol Invictus, leaves for Hyperborea in the winter. He takes the sun with him, and during this it was believed that Dionysus rules and gains followers through revels until Apollo returns again and banishes the winter, bringing in the summer, an age of athletics and ascetics with him and the cruel burning sun. Now, this occurs off the script, but it occurs to me to bring to your attention. In the story of Baldur's drama, we can draw another parallel to Mavon being rescued from the underworld. When Baldur has died, and when he has been brought to hell, he is sat in hell's kingdom, and is kept there a guest. The gods do not wish for this to be, so what does Odin do? He tries to negotiate for his release. He goes and summons the Volvar. He gets all the secrets and then realizes that he's probably not going anywhere. So he sends Hermod, one of his trusted servants, to Hell to negotiate his release. And Hell is so moved by this that she says that if everything on Midgard shall weep, that she would be happy to release her guest. Though she makes it clear that she has not treated him to any ill. So, as it goes, Hermod brings the news back. Messengers are dispensed to uh, gather tears from every living being. 
And of course, they come to a cave, and in the cave is this uh, shrill, foul old giantess by the name of Thok. And Thok will not weep. Of course, Thok is Loki in disguise. And uh, you should know that after this, Loki goes on the lamb again, but he returns to Asgard one last time to insult the gods to their faces, ushering in the Ragnarok. But I, I do believe it's in my script to talk about that later. So, let's return to the cruel burning sun. In Greece, the suffering sun was a daughter. She was Persephone. Proserpina, if you spoke Latin. Like Mavon, she was kidnapped and dragged to the underworld. Now, one might note that there appears to be gender bending. This is explained in some ways by the measurement of the solstice and climate. In Rome and Greece, the sun was masculine, and seems to be in Celtic cultures too. This is explained that in Rome and Greece, the sun is harsh, unforgiving. Apollo shot deadly arrows, after all. The moon was seen as feminine, being gentle and reassuring and mysterious. In the north, the land was harsher and colder. The sun, therefore, was gentler and seen as feminine, but the moon was often masculine because in cold climes, the night is far more dangerous, temperately speaking. So it goes with certain archetypes. It is also the function of which gender was a part. More than this, the superficial details that mattered. One of the things that bothers acolytes most upon trying to come home to the native European religions is the free use of what appears to be adultery in many stories. <clears throat> One must be forgiven, at first glance and without theological training, to see many myths as instances of divine trailer trationalism in a holy state. I get it, I do. I was young once. But we can answer these concerns very easily if you suspend, for a time, your disbelief. First, let us operate in the context of story. The gods lived a very long time. It is unreasonable to expect that a god would be married to the same partner for literally all eternity, especially when mortals have such poor marital track record themselves. Yes, I freely admit that gods are human in their appearance. This does not threaten my worldview, and it should not, nor should it threaten yours or anyone's, unless they are particularly fragile. To be so threatened makes you weak. I digress. If the lifespans of the gods are technically without end, then it makes sense that they would have had multiple relationships. Furthermore, there is the school of thought that holds that every time a god visits the world that he is reincarnating, that is, taking on new flesh and a new life. If a god has unlimited lives, then it also makes sense that they would be able to conceivably be able to remarry many times without technically committing adultery, because they would simultaneously both be and not be themselves. Consider the story of Lu, where he informs that he shall become an avatar in Kukelin, born Satanta. Consider also the ideology of Brahma, in which you have a supreme and penultimate god in the panentheist style. Eh, for those not familiar, literally, this means God both is and is in all. I can see the draw of the theory, in that there is the possibility that the European gods are just reinterpretations of the same god spread out over millennia of years and millions of collective travel miles. It is possible that subsequent reincarnations of the Godhead are a single god reincarnating and developing additional personas. Yeah, if this is true, it changes the moral parameter. 
If the whole Brahma bit is the one god dreaming a dream of sentience, then the whole cycle of reincarnation and the multiplicity in singularity can be understood as akin to a man gaining depth of his personality when he dreams a dream he is someone else, but upon waking has to struggle to dispel the uncomfortable elements of the dream wherein they seem so real. In this way a monad can be a triad, and the whole aspect of divine adultery can, can all be understood as the god revealing aspects of its personality through simulacrums, compartmentalized archetypes, and the divine psyche continuously interacting as symbolic agents of self-continuity. Ah, so there's that. Now, uh, again, off the script, because apparently I'm full of off-scripted and unscripted content tonight, I want to bring up the fact that the ancient Greek philosophers flirted with monotheism. Um, they did this independently to our knowledge of the Vedics, although there is some speculation that the Greeks and the Indians might have contacted each other at some point, but perhaps not to the degree where they would have been trading religious concepts. So the Greeks, I've used the word monad, the Greeks had the idea that there were monad singularities um, and that all divinity, all gods are reinterpretations of a single god spread out over time, right? And uh, that God might in, uh, create an avatar of himself, to borrow another Indian phrase, to show himself to a specific people at a specific time. They're all the same God displayed differently. Greeks had that idea. Um, the Romans, I believe, later on, when they began to develop functional philosophy, began to flirt with the idea, but they never went to the same detail as the Greeks did. Um, in Norse mythology, after Ragnarok, you get the idea that out of the ashes comes the Almotgeos, which is the Almighty God, who is the God above all gods, which, you know, uh, would would seem more to indicate Hanotheism, which is the idea of one God ruling over a plethora of other gods. But, um, you know, what are you going to do? So there's that. My personal favorite, an example I have worked, I have worked with and worked on for quite some time now, the one which I believe to be most true is this. Sex is poetry in mythology. When a god has sex and offspring, this might not be a literalist statement, much in the same way that there are hermeneutics of scripture where gematria is employed to explain problematic passages in the Bible. So can you assume native spirituality went before the Bible? Consider. Nearly universal is the concept of wisdom as being a feminine spirit. Sophia is the Greek goddess who becomes the root word for philosophy. In the Old Testament, wisdom appears to the Israelites in her Hebrew name, which I want to say is Shekinah, but I might be wrong. Uh, and later, Aramaic and Greek. In Norse mythology, Odin is depicted as a wanderer in search of wisdom, uncapitalized. However, if we consider that wisdom was considered a spirit near universally, it changes our understanding of his quest. Furthermore, in native religious sto stories, adherence to nomenclature is to be advised. Take Zeus, often described as being lecherous in paltry. We must at least offer a defense. In his marriage to Hera, he courted goddesses and mortals alike to create offspring. However, mind their names. Nemozina, his first, gave the muses. Her name means memory. Zeus's name is linked to glory. 
And what do the muses do? They sing of past deeds, help mortals remember their lineages. They commemorate glory with memory. The whole relationship is poetry. So with Athena, too. Athena, we all know the tale, was born from the head of Zeus. Consider the metaphysical applications. The head is the seat of the soul. Only the Mayans would have disagreed as they cut out your heart to have dinner. When we say she was born from Zeus's head, we're saying that she came from his thoughts and his very essence after his own soul. In other words, she was in every way meant to be his successor. They made this very clear in the mythology, and I do believe that we covered that in my Greek episode. Now, so when Odin woos Gunnlod in his attempt to steal the meat of poetry, is this some debased and lecherous act? Not necessarily. Wisdom, a feminine article, is something Odin loves. Gunnlod, in this instance, is a guardian of wisdom. When he lies with her, it is a metaphorical ascent. He is unlocking the secrets of wisdom. It's depicted like sleeping with a woman. Both are pleasurable, require significant build-up and foreplay, and should last a while if both parties are going to get the most of it, as we see with the story of Billing's daughter. Yeah, but as we see with the story of Billing's daughter, there are ramifications when things don't go your way. Sometimes chasing wisdom is a wild goose chase. Sometimes people laugh at you. In the Bible itself, wisdom, the feminine spirit, is explicitly stated as being there when God made the world. Wisdom is invoked by many saints and prophets as a person. So she is both a person and a metaphor, in a sense. But the pursuit of wisdom is a labor of love. This is the point. That is why the Greeks called it philosophy, love of wisdom. Granted, in Greek there are five words that we call love, and philia is more brotherly love than eros, from which we gain erotica, as I believe we mentioned elsewhere. Never mind storge, mania, and agape for now. Still, as the new kids say, love is love, and seeking wisdom, therefore, is a lover's errand. Think about it. Learning is a long process, and that's just for knowledge. If wisdom is a step beyond knowledge, then it would naturally involve a tease and a tickle, gently flirting until wisdom gives you what you want. You don't just meet a girl and give her a run for your money overnight, do you? That's a bad example. Take the trad pill. Long courtships make for better sex, says the man who has never had sex with a woman that isn't his wife. This attitude can also help alleviate confusion with the at times schizophrenic presentation of the gods' relationship with the giants. If we assume the metaphorical stance, it makes sense that the giant races represent the gods of peoples, that the peoples of the gods were at war with. Then naturally, they would seem monstrous. And yet, these peoples were often tribally interconnected. Hence, they are still beautiful. Or, you know, you could just take the grub pill and say male chauvinist pig bad, orange man bad, everything bad. Whatever. You do you. But I'd like to think you'll make the right choice. Mm. So, there we come to the end of it, on that uh, fine and sunshiny note. This feels like it's been a long one, but then again, why not? We have many ancestors, and our ancestors had many gods who themselves had ancestors. And, I'll remind you, our first ancestors were still gods. There is a lot to discuss, a great deal more than I can say. If raising the children takes a village, then building the village needs more 
Uh, needs a more active metabond, but we'll get there. My hope and prayer is that if nothing else, these paltry offerings of mine can stimulate your spiritual growth toward an organic culture that proudly carries our past along the line, devoid of blood libels, free of the mistakes that brought us here. We owe our children this. Earlier in the day that I recorded this, I was watching the film Yudsus. Now, at one point, the good German, Herr Sturm, is explaining things to his kameraden. If the duke hits him on the nose for disobedience, it is his nose. But if their blood is wasted, then that, the blood belongs to the children. He also asks Sus Oppenheimer quite, op uh, quite po pointedly later on, What do you know of honor? It's a valuable question to ask the kind of man who laughs at tradition and, seen his, and has sees and sees his own culture's tradition as quaint anachronisms that pale in glory before his true god, Moloch. Oppenheimer is hanged a traitor, and one that never belonged in Württemberg. It is my duty to remind you that these movies, beautiful escapist fantasies with bittersweet endings, do us a minor disservice. We couch our terminology in terms such as betrayal and so forth. However, in the case of parallel institutions, there is no case. Oppenheimer brought his cancer to a world with clear delineations. By the grace of their god, Herzog Karl was Duke of Württemberg. Jutsus abused clear lines of succession with usury and deceit. Today, there are no lines of succession. Governments represent nothing. Peoples are no one. The lines we have to cross or hold, they are ours to draw. That is why these works of culture, of insistence, are defiance of a different sort. You cannot waste your breath being angry at a world government that does what it is compelled to do. Save that energy to build something you can be angry at and molested. That requires redirection and focus. If you read my work or hear my words, take heed and good stock that none of this cloud world we have will ever end until we force it to. A man cannot revolt on protest alone. He needs something to defend not a black hole where his soul should be. If indeed we are to be a race, then we must have a shared history and culture. The Greeks had valuable criteria for this. If I recall correctly, it was Herodotus who gave us a basis. The people, to be a people, must share in common four things, blood, soil, king, and God, or religion. A common blood feeding a ground a common ground under a common law beneath a common god. Another fanciful empire reduced it to one empire, one people, one ruler. And you know what that means in the original German. But alas, alack, I suppose time shall tell. What it tells, I cannot say. But I pray for that return to saliency, legitimacy to pursuit of wisdom, embrace of tradition, honor, too, is addicted decided in common among the people. Shall we let that too run amuck amid the opinions of the hoi polloi, or shall we take that too and subject it to a lens of scrutiny? Nothing is sacred as long as we admit nothing is. The line awaits our hand to be drawn. Do as thou wilt, and it harm none of our own. Until next time, I'll leave you with this. I will leave you with our slogan, and I will say, strength and honor, lads, and good night or good morning.